Well, I want to tell you about prophets today. We're studying prophets. We're studying the minor prophets. They're not minor because they're unimportant. They're minor because they're shorter than the other prophets. Um, but prophets do the strangest things. If you know anything about prophets, you know that they did some really odd things to make their point. We have to remember that this was all taking place back in ancient Israel, very different time and culture from now, a kind of a harsher time. Um, God was speaking very directly and very practically to his people, but even so, the prophets were called to do some really weird stuff, okay? Let's start with, for example, Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah to go buy a linen belt, a real belt that you put around your waist, and then bury it so it'd be ruined. Let me read you what it says in Jeremiah 13. Many days later, the Lord said to me, go now to Parath and get the belt I told you to hide there. So he's already buried the belt, the brand new belt that he buried. I went to Parath and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it, but now it was ruined and completely useless. And then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them will be like this belt, completely useless. For the, as the belt is bound around the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor, but they have not listened. So weird little thing, but the belt is kind of like an object lesson, right? Well, it gets weirder, okay? Let me tell you about Isaiah. Isaiah walked around naked for three years. I know you'll find that hard to believe, but it's in the Bible. Isaiah 20, it says this. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be dismayed and put to shame. People think the Bible's boring. <laughs> How about Ezekiel? He had a really strange and difficult commission from God. It says this in Ezekiel 4. Then go lie on your left side. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. Lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you finish this, Lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. Remember, those Israel and Judah was two different nations, so he's doing it for both nations. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar, and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also, measure out a sixth of a hint of water and drink it at set times. Now... That sounds terrible enough, right? Lying on your side for over a year, um, you know, just, just whatever side. Uh, he goes on. God says this, eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread, bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. And this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. And this was finally too much for Ezekiel. <laughs> and he said, 
No. I said, not so, sovereign Lord. I have never defiled myself from my youth until now. I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, God said. I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. Because <laughs> that makes it a lot better, right? Weird stuff. What is going on here? What is happening? And um, what these are called are sign acts. They are sort of a visual way of God showing and speaking to his people. And he did this through his prophets. Here's a definition of synax. Synax are nonverbal actions and objects intentionally employed by the prophets so that the message content was communicated through them to the audience. In other words, just think of them as visual aids. <laughs> they were visual aids. It was a way that God was showing them, kind of uh, it, communicating his thoughts and judgments, but in a way that people would actually see it played out before them, and they would remember it. Because I am sure, this was a smart move by God, right? We all know a picture is worth a thousand words. I am sure um, the image of Isaiah walking around naked was burned in their eyes, right? <laughs> They're not going to forget that too soon, and they, so therefore they wouldn't forget the word of the Lord. So this is, this is one of the ways that God spoke through his prophets. And here we are, we're on a new prophet today, we're on Hosea. If you look at the timeline of the prophets and where we are, you see Hosea's way over to the left. Um, this is when Israel and Judah split. If you recall the history here, there's more of Israel's history prior to this time, but that was when uh, the patriarchs were called. Abraham was called. The patriarchs were called. We had the, the, the United Kingdom, but then it was at this point that Israel and Judah split into two kingdoms. Um, and so this is really toward the beginning of that. And the whole purpose here of this message, of this series that we're in to talk about the minor prophets is those prophets were sent. All those men across the top were sent to tell Israel and Judah, you're off track. It's bad enough you split into two nations, but now you are off track. And if you don't get back on track with God, judgment's coming. Trouble is coming, and you're like a train that's barreling down, and you're going to go off the track. And they always say you have a chance to get back on track, but you're going off track if you don't listen to the Lord. And so that's where we are in Hosea, and um, as you can see in 732, and then in 586, different com countries come in and conquer Israel and Judah. So they do um, get off track. But the book of Hosea is toward the beginning of this, and he's trying to say to the people of Israel, primarily, um, get back on track. You can get back on track. Say back on track. Back on track. Book of Hosea is a sign act, the whole book. It's a sign act, like what we heard about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God is asking Hosea to do something really strange and really hard. So let's read what happens here, Hosea 1, 2 to 3. It says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, what exactly did they mean here when they talk about a promiscuous woman? If you have different versions of the Bible, it's translated all kinds of different ways. Uh, in the ESV, he calls this a wife of whoredom, uh, as in a whore. So he, that's the word they chose to use to translate in the ESV version. In the King James and NASB, they call it a wife of harlotry. That's what they call her. The New Living calls her a prostitute. Um, it's unclear whether this woman was a woman who just simply committed adultery, was a prostitute. It's also unclear whether she did this, these actions before Hosea even married her or if it was after they had gotten married. It's not clear from the scripture. Um, the Hebrew word here can mean adultery, fornication, or prostitution. So it can mean any of the above. 
So we're not really sure. But the fact is, it doesn't matter in a way, because what we know here is that Hosea knows he's going to marry someone who will break his heart. That's what he knows. Um, and Hosea was a prophet. He was called by God to do this as a sign act. It was a way of showing um, something about God. It's a graphic illustration of about the way Israel has been unfaithful to God and yet how God continued to love her. And you're going to see that as we go through Hosea here. And it's also to remind us, and this is fascinating to me, that God knew ahead of time, just as Hosea knew ahead of time what was coming in his marriage, God knew ahead of time that Israel would be unfaithful to him. I mean, he even knows ahead of time that we're going to be unfaithful to him, right? But he was in covenant with them anyway. He loved them anyway. He continued to keep calling out to them, even though he knew they'd be unfaithful. It's amazing. And here's the thing. We can all feel for Hosea in this situation. I mean, what a terrible spot to be put in. Um, what a thing, hard thing to have to do. And here's the thing. We're meant to feel it. Because the way Hosea felt is the way God feels when we fall away from him, when we move away from him, when we are unfaithful in any way to him. It's the way God feels when we stray away. That's the heartbreak that God feels. And so that's powerful. I mean, that's a word right there from Hosea. If that's all you get out of it, that God feels it when we sin, when we walk away from him, when we ignore him in our life. He feels it. He feels it. See, we tend to think when we ignore God or we just kind of do whatever we feel like doing when it comes to God, sometimes we're in, sometimes we're out, sometimes we're into it, sometimes we're not. We just, you know, do everything else, you know, but think about God. Um, we kind of think, well, it's not good, but it's just hurting me, right? It's kind of like when there's a plate of cookies in the office, you people that leave plates of cookies here. And every time I walk by it, I take a cookie and eat it because I can't help it, right? Because they're so good, right? So I, every time I walk by it, I'm eating another one. And I keep telling myself I should really stop eating the cookie, but I have another one. And then I have another one. And by about 4 o'clock, both me and Kay were sick to our stomach because we've been eating so many cookies. Maybe I, the, the scale's gone up a pound by the next day, right? I knew it wasn't a good idea to eat all the cookies. And I know it's bad for me, but it only hurts me, right? It doesn't hurt you. It doesn't hurt anybody else. Nobody else is gaining weight because I'm eating cookies. It just hurts me. And so I think we kind of feel that way about our spiritual life, that, you know, it's all about me. It's, you know, if, I, if I'm into God, that's great. If I'm not into God, it's fine. You know, it's, it just only hurts me. If I'm following other things, I'm following money or popularity or, or, or pleasure or whatever it is that I'm pursuing, you know, it only hurts me, right? Actually wrong. It hurts our God. He calls you his beloved. He loves you. Um, he feels it. He calls us his bride. And so even when we put it in, in the back seat, when we fail to honor and worship him the way he deserves to be honored, it doesn't just hurt us, it breaks his heart. And I think that's what we're meant to learn here in Hosea. It's a, it's a strong word that he cares that much about us. It matters to him whether you're in relationship with him or not. We had that word this morning about being in relationship with him. It matters to him. It's not like he just cares about all these other people who seem to be more spiritual than you. No, he wants, it matters to him that every one of us is in relationship with him. That's how much he loves you. This is the message of Hosea. He feels it. And so we're going to see that in this sign act throughout all of Hosea. That even though the people were off track, God is saying over and over again, get back on track. Get back on track. You're my beloved. You're my beloved. 
And so let's talk a little bit about what else is in Hosea. So we have this strange marriage at the beginning, and then it kind of goes into, for a number of chapters, some other things. This is a minor prophet, but it's still kind of a longish one. It's got 14 chapters in it. If you tried to read it ahead of time, first you found, wow, this one goes on a little longer. Some of them are only like three chapters. This one uh, has a little more to it. Um, and not all of it's talking about Hosea and his marriage to his wife and all of that. Most of it is talking about Israel's sins. See, this is, again, it's a sign act about Israel's sins, the way they've fallen away from the Lord. And so that's why, um, that's what it's about. And so there's kind of a number of sins that he points out uh, that Israel's committing. The first one is idolatry, okay? Burning incense to the Baals and sacrificing to idols. Let me read you just a little bit about that from Hosea 11. It says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. Hosea 4.13 says this, they sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. So what's happening here is rather than just worshiping the one true God as Israel was meant to do, they were sharing time with the Baals, okay? They decided a little bit of everything will cover all my bases. So I'll do a little sacrifice to Baal, and I'll do my sacrifice to Yahweh, and maybe there's another God, I'll take that one. But let's just make sure I cover all my bases. This is called syncretism. It's where the mixing of religions, just trying to cover it all. And, you know, you might say, well, they might have said, well, you know, I'm still worshiping God, right? I mean, I'm still offering sacrifices to God. I'm still doing that. It's a little bit like me saying to my husband, yeah, you're my husband, but I'm also going to go with Joe and Anthony and this one over here, right? You know, I've got a few on the side. It's okay, right? How many husbands are going to be happy with that? Not too many. Not too many. No wives would be happy about that either. God wasn't happy about that. If God is truly the one God, truly almighty God, the creator, he wants to be the only one. He wants to be our one and only that we worship. And so um, that's what God had a problem with here. Now, who was Baal? Baal's mentioned a lot in the scripture. He was a Canaanite god, uh, a god worshipped by the Canaanites, um, and he was the god of fertility and um, agriculture. So it kind of covers all the big things, right? Your, your crops uh, so that you can eat, and then fertility so your family would be reproduced. So, um, you know, this was an important god, and all the pagan nations worshipped this god, and so Israel just was continually tempted to worship to this God because they also wanted fertility and good agriculture, and so they were kind of pulled into this uh, often. Um, an interesting little fact about Baal, so they would not only, they considered him a God, but they would also create little shrines in all the different um, towns, and so that's why sometimes they say you're worshiping the Baals, they would in, 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 in plural, because there were lots of little Baal shrines everywhere you went. Well, we have to understand that was particularly... Um, problematic about the worship of Baal, other than the, just the, the pure fact of worshiping someone other than God, um, is that a central part of the sacrifice and worship of Baal was to commit sexual acts. So the men would go in and have sex with the temple prostitutes, and this was meant to arouse Baal to bring fertility. So this was part of what um, they did, and this is why Hosea speaks of the daughters turning to prostitution. I don't know what's happening here. Is it me? Do I have to tighten it? It's pretty tight. There we go. Um, what's, what the Israelites would do is they're not only sacrificing to the gods, but they're bringing their daughters and their daughter-in-laws to be shrine prostitutes. So you can see why God was so upset about this, right? This was just not what he meant to do. I feel like it's now really quiet. Is that supposed to be? Okay. 
You can hear it? Okay, okay. Um, I want to make a side note here, okay? Can I just do a little parenthesis? We're talking about the sins of Israel. We'll get back to them, but I need to make a little parenthesis here. Um, we know the Bible was written in a very patriarchal time, back in a time when women had practically no rights. They were pretty much the possession of the men in their lives, from, from fathers to husbands. Um, and so people like to say sometimes the Bible is patriarchal, that it's against women. Um, and what I want you to know that's very interesting, the more I study the scripture, the more I see how untrue that is. And if you are a student of it, you see there's so much in here where God is pushing the envelope. He doesn't overturn all of the patriarchy all at once, just like he didn't overturn all of slavery all at once. He didn't overturn all of polygamy all at once. But all throughout Scripture, you see God, and he is constantly pushing the envelope toward more egalitarianism, toward more justice for all, toward more equality. He's always pushing that. It's the arc of all of Scripture, if you look through Scripture. Um, and so if you look at this what's happening here. Ordinarily in this culture, if you were caught as a prostitute or caught committing adultery as a woman, the woman is the one who'd be punished. She would be stoned or killed or punished in some way. Um, and you always wonder, you know, what about the guy? Like, wasn't he part of that too? But he's never punished. And this was actually true in our society not too long ago, that it was always on the woman that she was the one who was responsible for the adultery. Um, this is fascinating this little verse in Hosea. Keep in mind, this is in the 8th century B.C. Okay, this is a long, long time ago. He's admonishing Israel for sacrificing to Baal. Let me read to you what it says in Hosea 4.14. This is God speaking. He says, I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with the shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. And I love what God is saying here is, hey, it takes two to tango. And the men are just as responsible for the sexual sin as the women are. And in fact, he goes even further and he says, and in this society where women have practically no rights and no agency and probably we're not even responsible, I'm not going to hold them responsible. I'm not going to punish them for that. Probably their fathers or husbands put them up to be shrine prostitutes anyway. And so he protects them even in this old-fashioned, old patriarchal time. He protects the women. I love that. Do you love that about God? That no matter what, God is always for justice. He's for, uh, he's against oppression and misogyny every time, full stop. I love that. Amen? Amen. So that was my little parenthetical. I just had to point that out. Whenever I see things like that, I want to point it out because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the Bible's teaching, especially about issues like women. So let's go back to the sins. So we have the first sin that, that the Israelites committed, and that was um, idolatry, sacrificing to the other gods. But the second one, sorry, I'm having a little trouble with this thing. It keeps falling off. Um, the second sin that he points out is not acknowledging God and therefore resulting in lots of terrible sins like cursing, lying, murder, etc. So let me read to you from Hosea 4. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Hosea 5 says this, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord Israel's arrogance testifies against them. Sins here, again, are all doing evil, bloodshed, uh, murder, stealing, adultery, essentially not acknowledging God. 
He calls it a spirit of prostitution. And again, prostitution in Hosea is like a metaphor. It's for what we do when we are sinning against God. It's like we are being unfaithful to him, just as a prostitute would be unfaithful or an adulterer would be unfaithful to the one whom they, are ba- whom they should be faithful to. That's the way it is when we sin against God. We're being unfaithful to him. He's our husband. He considers us his bride. And so that's what, um, what God is saying here. God especially speaks against those who pretend to follow God. Um, They're still serving Yahweh in some way, but we know that they're not acknowledging God in the way they treat others, in their their hardship toward others, and in bloodshed and um, lack of justice. Uh, I love what it says here in Hosea 8. When he talks about Ephraim, he's talking about Israel. That's one of the tribes of Israel. And it says, Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote them, the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign, though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. So again, God does not care for a double-mindedness where we're doing our own thing, not listening to him, not obeying him, not carrying out justice, acting in some way as an oppressor, as someone who is not doing the right thing, and then coming to church and being like, praise the Lord, all God is good. And offering those sacrifices, he doesn't like that at all. And this is, again, the context for the probably the verse from Hosea that you do know. Jesus quotes it, um, and he says this from Hosea 6.6. He says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So God is going to rather that we are acting with mercy and with kindness, that we're acknowledging God in our life and living for him, than we show up to every single church event and every single church service but are holding that sin in our hearts. Does that make sense? So I just thank the Lord that he makes this so very clear here. Um, the third thing that we see as a sin here in, in Isaiah or in Hosea is that the people of Israel turned to other nations when they should have been turning to God. It's like adding insult to injury, right? Not only are they worshiping other gods, they're not putting God first, they're not acknowledging him, they're doing all these sinful things that they know are against God, and then finally they turn to other nations for help. So um, it says in Hosea 5, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help, but he's not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. And in chapter 8, it says, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. So it's interesting, Assyria is the the country they turned to for help. Does anybody remember what was the country that finally conquered Israel and and spread them abroad, Assyria. <laughs> so they turned to the one for help who ended up being the means of their destruction. How often we do that, we turn to things that we think are going to satisfy, and they end up destroying us. So I, I put these out for you, these sins of Israel, idolatry, not acknowledging God, doing things we know God does not want us to do, turning to other things for our satisfaction. And I say, do we relate to any of these sins, church? Do we relate to any of these? Do we worship other gods, other idols? They say that what you spend the most time on is your God. So I kind of think for some of us, YouTube is our God. (laughs) Anybody relate to that? Some people spend a lot of time on YouTube, just going from one to the next. I can spend a lot of time going from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. What do we spend our time on? What kind of idols do we have in our world today? Are there idols? Most of us aren't worshiping idols of stone and wood. We're not bowing down to some kind of figure, but there are other idols in our world. Amen. There's money and success. 
There's comfort. Even family can become an idol. Um, whatever we do to make ourselves more comfortable, more happy. Anything that we put at the center of our life that's the, kind of the thrust of our day, the thing we're thinking about all day that we've got to get to and get and do, that can become an idol for us. Can we put God at the center of our day? Can we put serving him at the center? And he will help us as we need to make some money and we need to take care of our family, but can we put him at the center? Let's not make an idol of these things. Um, some of us simply have a longing within us. We want to be satisfied in some way. We want to feel happy. We want to feel satisfied. So how many of us can relate to turning to every other thing than God? We know if I would just get on my knees and start to pray, God would meet me there. But, oh, I don't want to do that. So I eat some food. I eat some more cookies. I watch some more TV. I get the YouTube thing going. Play video game. I just get busy on a project. Oh, I'm going to organize a closet. You know, I'm going to get do something else to avoid just being with God. How many of us can relate to that? I can relate to that. I'm your pastor, okay? And I relate to that. I can put God kind of on a back burner for like days, sometimes weeks. It's not like I deny, I'm not denying him or walking away from him, but he's just a little back burner. Do you know what I'm saying? I got other stuff I'm doing, important stuff I'm doing. Now, mind you, the ironic thing is most of the stuff I'm doing is for God, right? Because <laughs> I'm working at church. It doesn't make it any better. I can do what I do here without ever getting on my knees and talking to God. It won't be good after a while. Probably it'll show up, but it could take a while for it to show up. And so I relate to this, that somehow I can, I can seek my own comfort, my own selfishness, just wanting to just, you know, just kind of blot everything out, just numb everything out. can get in my own self-absorbed little world. I can be unfaithful to God too. Can anyone else relate to what I'm saying here? I sure hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, y'all can get up here and speak. Of course we can relate to this. This is the human condition, is it not? This is how we get off track, and we all can get off track. This is why we need Jesus. Do you remember that picture shows Jesus at the end of that line? We need Jesus. That's the only way we can stay on track. It's the only way. But we've got to recognize we're getting off track. And get back on track. And this is where Hosea, in this intimate and powerful way, speaks so strongly of the love of God. Remember, Hosea's marriage is a sign act, right? It's meant to show us something visibly, a physical representation of what God's trying to say. Let me just read to you what he says to Hosea in Hosea 3. Then the Lord says to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a leth of barley. And I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. And afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Now, I want to just say something here that I feel is important to say. I know there are some in this room, I'm sure there are some in this room, who have suffered the sting and the betrayal of adultery in your own life and with your marriage partner, with a boyfriend or girlfriend, you've suffered perhaps even abuse from someone who should have protected you and loved you. And I want you to be very clear about this. This book is not telling you that you have to go back to your adulterous spouse 
or your abusive spouse. That's not what this book is about. Okay, there's marriages that are unhealthy and that are dangerous and that we need to set up some boundaries and do be, be faithful to God by being careful and taking care of ourselves and our families. Um, this is a sign act. Remember, this book is a sign act. So it's not really talking about you and me. It's really showing us what God is like. The incredible love of God. And he does an incredible thing here. It's this unbelievable act on the part of the prophet is meant to show us that God loves you no matter what. That he takes you back no matter what. That he loves even his unfaithful people. That he will take them back. Chapter upon chapter of the sins of Israel he talks about over and over again, and yet still he loves them. He still keeps calling back to them. I'm going to um, skip the Hosea 11 passage. We're going to go to Hosea 11:8. When God had every right to punish Israel for their sins, listen to his words. He says this, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? Now, he's just told them all the things they did wrong, how off track they are. But how can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes." What a speech from our creator. No matter what they have done, he says, I'm going to settle them in their homes. His heart has changed. How has he changed? He hasn't changed. That's his heart. He can't help but love. God is love, and he can't help but love. And I love how he says, I'm God and not a man. Right? I mean, we hold grudges. We're angry. We shut people away. We um, find it hard to forgive, but not God. He can't help but love us. Can you imagine that?
he can't help but love you. He can't help but love you. <laughs> Listen, I, want, I pray that we, each one of us recognizes our own sins, the way we've fallen away from God, the ways that we have not followed him, and I pray that we come back to him. I pray that we give our lives to him and ask to be his child and that we ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit so that we can continue to stay on track with him and follow him. I really pray that that's what every one of us desires to do and will do. But I've got to say this, that even if you do not, even if you persist in your sinning, if you keep failing time after time after time, even if you vow to do better and then still fall, if you go away and come back and go away and come back, even if you're not sure if you even believe with him at all, you want to know something? God loves you. God loves you just as you are. Sit with that for a minute. Sit with that. God wanted you to hear that. <laughs> wanted you to remember that. This is not the message of most other religions or philosophies. Mostly we have to earn our way to be loved and accepted by God, but God loves you just as you are. Our God is bigger, and maybe we could say it, dare I say it, a little crazier than that. He loves you in your sin, in your hardship, in your mess. And as we call on him, yes, he will give us faith. He will help us to come to a saving knowledge of him, that we can come in relationship with him and know that our sins are forgiven, that we'll be with him in heaven someday. He wants all of that for us. But you're saved by grace. Never forget that. And you're loved forever. Forever and ever. Forever and ever. I want us to just sit for a moment with this thought that God loves you. Just as you are. 1 Corinthians 6 says you were bought with a price, just like Hosea bought back Gomer for some shekels and some barley. 1 Peter 1, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold you were redeemed or bought back from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He's waiting with open arms, and he can't wait, and he can't help but love you. So return to him. Return to him with all of your heart. Whether you've known him a long time, whether you've never known him, know today that he loves you. And I want us to just take a moment. I asked the band to come on up, and I want us to take a moment to just simply receive the love of God. So I invite you to just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to imagine receiving the love of God. And I know immediately some of you have different thoughts filling your mind. <laughs> some of you might be thinking, I'm not worthy. Or I can't receive this. Or I should really f repent of some sins first. <laughs> or I'm not sure I believe this. And I want you to just put all that aside for a minute. I want you to just close your eyes and receive the love of God. He loves you right exactly where you are. Let the love of God wash over you. And it's interesting that even as I was preparing this, I got a word. 
and I'm still getting the word. It's been so strong. But I think there's some of us here who have never really felt loved by God. You've been serving him your whole life, or a lot of your life, and you've been trying to do all the right things and get it all done and, and come to church and serve people and help people and do everything, and you still don't know that he loves you. It just feels far away, like you're not worthy. You don't feel like enough. And if that's you today, I just want to invite you to just like turn your hands facing up so that you're just in a posture to receive the love of God. He's here. He's saying, stop trying to be enough. I'm enough for you. Love of God, pour down over us. Pour down over us, Lord. And it's his love that draws us into, his love and his kindness draws us into repentance. And so this morning, if you are someone who says, I've never really given my heart to Jesus, I'm not sure what any of this is about, this is a moment where you can say, repent of my sins, Lord, and I want to be your child. I know that you forgive me, that you have cleansed me. So I invite you this morning to ask him into your heart. Be reconciled to God. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves you. So let us just take a few moments just to let the love of God pour over you. And if you've never prayed this before, I invite you to pray this with me. Lord God, I, I believe in you. Maybe I've been running away from you. Maybe I just haven't gotten around to receiving you, but I want to receive you into my life today, Lord. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your death on the cross for me. And I receive your cleansing. I want to follow you, Lord. Oh, love of God, come. Love of God, come. Mm, how he loves us.